Welcome to the Mandalorian Podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial podcast for the Outer Rim. My name is Matt, and joining me in the co-pilot seat is Pete. Hello, the Pete. What up, all my Mandos and Mandats? The Mandalorian Podcast by Fantastic Geek dons our helmets for Chapter 4, Sanctuary. Pete, this, the final episode to be premiering in November. Can't wait to get to December where there's going to be lots and lots of Star Wars discussion, both talking about the final four episodes of Mandalorian as well as, I think, another Star Wars movie? Yeah, just a little bit. The last of the uh, the sequel trilogy, the last of the Skywalker saga, The Rise of Skywalker, we'll be checking it out on uh, Thursday, December 19th, bringing you our review that weekend with plenty of opportunity for your feedback. Now, Pete, your Hollywood uh, press people have the uh, the most advanced numbers, uh, the most you know outward looking numbers for Rise of Skywalker being uh, it uh, premiering at over two hundred million dollars in the United States. Uh, complete proof of Ryan Johnson ruining everything. Correct. Uh, listen, The Last Jedi is an absolute uh, magnificent wonder. Anyone who says differently uh, needs to show us where on uh, Ray's X-Wing pilot doll the saga has hurt them. Yeah, but Pete, Rise of Skywalker is going to be opening day and date in China as well. Surely that too is repudiation against hashtag dying Star Wars, right? I mean, that's only going to hurt it somehow, right? That's what I want to say in my YouTube <laughs> slash blog. Yeah, and your Snoke theory sucks. Now, Pete, I've heard some tell on social medias, etc., that uh, The Mandalorian, in terms of streaming prowess, has perhaps dethroned the great streaming king slash queen of the last couple of years stranger things it has according to a report in business insider disney plus's the mandalorian has overtaken stranger things as the most streamed series in the united states what i think is interesting is you know no slam against stranger things i i, I was one of the few people that liked the second season let's say less than the average person but you know hearty three outings hearty cultural uh, impact etc i and i think everybody else really really enjoyed the third season uh but i think at the end of the day part of the reason you know there's constantly articles about baby yoda or there's new gifts or there's new stories about uh disney pulling down baby yoda gifts and things of that sort it's all i think part of a larger streaming discussion which is that this binge period that we've been in has been nice, but episodic releases, that really, really is the way to go. Weekly is the way that you build a fandom and not just build a thing where I love uh, The Mandalorian the most, therefore I watched it all in one day. Oh, you liked it a lot. You watched it all on the weekend. Oh, you were busy because of family? I guess you don't love it as much as me. You're only on episode six, three days in. You know, There's none of this differentiation going on. And I think the interesting part I'm finding anecdotally, these weekly episodes I watch over and over, um, part of that is podcasting and taking notes after a first impression and everything like that. But with a bingeable series, you just binge it and then you're done. Um, yeah, there are people that go back through it and watch it again. Um, but to rewatch an episode multiple times in a week and 
you know, all these impressions that they have had. I mean, the, the week of November 17 to the 23rd, there were over 1 million demand uh, expressions uh, through uh, analytics there. So, you know, comparatively speaking, um, Netflix with uh, Stranger Things only had 81 million. And like you said, we're seeing how images of the child and and uh, gifs and everything like that. The one this week of him drinking the soup has already become the new, you know, tea sipping uh, thing to do on uh, social media. All the more, you know, particularly Black Friday, this fourth episode coming out, you know, in the cultural zeitgeist. Well, with that, Pete, it's time to hit the hunt. Bright blue krill shrimp bob in the water before they're scooped up in a basket from above on a bustling farm where both villagers and an agricultural droid are happily at work. A woman looks on contentedly as little girl Winta chases after a frog, but the peace is soon shattered when birds are frightened out of the forest by thuds and a distant explosion prompted panic shouts of they're back yes the locals start to run away from the tree line towards their huts some real simple geography laid out here not a criticism just it's easy to understand the tree line the water's edge the huts etc heavy blaster fire comes in from a high angle pete i have to confess i didn't even consider that the fact that i've seen some of the uh, lego merchandising tied into this episode it didn't even cross my mind uh, that we were necessarily getting the walker in this episode, but here we have it. Heavy blaster fire from the high angle. Uh, Winter calls to her uh, still unnamed mother. Even as the Clatoonians attack on foot, Winter and her mother hide under a mesh basket in the bog. Goods are taken away from the village. Looks like a clean getaway, even as the head uh, Clatoonian slinks into the fog. Yes, leading us to the title card and the name of the episode here, Sanctuary. Razor Crest streaks through space in the cockpit. The child presses buttons before he's told to stop touching things. I love that he looks at the Mandalorian and then touches another button that makes the entire ship rattle (laughs) before the Mandalorian decides to put him on his lap as he evaluates the planet of Sorgan. No starport, no industrial centers or population density. This backwater scug hole seems like the perfect place to hide. And you see in this scene, you know, uh, events being played for multiple reasons. The button pushing is funny on its own, but it's also a story excuse for the Mandalorian to move the child onto his lap to kind of bring that more paternal closeness that I don't think the Mandalorian would would reach out for. Uh, but now it's kind of out of necessity. Meanwhile, we all go, oh, you know, he, he really does care for the child. Um, but in the skies of Sorgan, uh, we see that the Razor Crest flies over the very same krill fishing village, uh, krill farming village, Pete. They use wacky, weird words here. Um, <laughs> but uh, ultimately, the Razor Crest picks a spot in the middle of the forest. 
uh, the Mandalorian tells the child to stay put in the cockpit. You stay right here. You stay. Don't move. <laughs> Cut to the cargo bay door coming down, and the child is right there with him. Just a wonderful moment. Once again, something that is achieved largely without dialogue. Yes, there's a dialogue. Stay put. Stay put. But you don't get, hey, I told you to stay. Instead, there's kind of this, well, I guess you're with me as they head into, Pete, what I'm calling the semi-industrial town. So we have town, we have village. Separate spots. At this modest market, food is prepared and sold. The Mandalorian and the child arrive and take it all in. There's some great shots from the child's vantage point. Not as much as last week. And I think part of that is the directorial uh, choice of Deborah Chow versus Bryce Dallas Howard here. Um, but there's a Loath Cat uh, first live action version of the animal uh, glimpsed in Star Wars Rebels for the first time that shrieks at the child. The uh, hearty barmaid attends to the Mandalorian and the child. I know it's a lot of us, everybody. Not everybody. Those who are upset about, about it. It is what it is. Reviewing the archetypes here. Ultimately, one porringer of broth is ordered. That's for the child. Uh, there is another woman eyeing them. It's Cara Dune. She's not named yet. But Pete, we have the barmaid, who is a woman. She's a woman. Uh, we have the child. We have the Mandalorian. Let's call her Cara Dune at this point to make things a little mm -hmm. bit easier. Uh, the Mandalorian tips the barmaid as to uh, trying to get a little bit of Kara's background there. The barmaid doesn't know much. Then suddenly the mysterious unnamed Cara Dune is gone from the market bar restaurant eating area. Yes, he flips some more credits to the barmaid to keep an eye on the kid while he checks out side with his uh, helmet. He's able to use predator vision the heat vision there for the tracks suddenly they go cold and before he can look up Cara Dune is uh knocking him to the ground yes it's an evenly matched fight oh no Pete that's going to offend some people who don't like Ray either too bad um not the most knock him down fight that we've seen, but a quite good bit of stunt work here. Uh, they even uh, just about draw blasters at near the same time. Uh, I think that is the moment where there's a certain sense of realization on both their parts that, you know, <laughs> something is amiss here. Regardless, they pause, the child looking at them, the now iconic, you know, Pete iconic <laughs> in the last, <laughs> wait, just since yesterday, right? Yes. Yeah, 28 hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, iconic in the last day and a half uh, image of the child sipping his soup. Uh, and with that, the Mandalorian offers her some soup as well. We head into the tavern where effortless exposition. We get her bringing these two people who don't know her up to speed about her life. Also, we get brought up to speed. She talks about mopping up after the Battle of Endor, then doing diplomatic coverage, uh, the job turning less and less into what she was uh, initially set out to do. She decided to settle down on this planet. She figured that the Mandalorian was a guild member, that's your bounty hunter guild, and that he had a fob on her. So in a handful of lines here, we're all caught up to speed. She says she was on this planet first and wonders if the Mandalorian should be shoving off. Yeah, and like you said, in the in the most effortless way, 
we come to understand this, there's still plenty of room for mystery, this early retirement, what might be the situation there. But uh, yeah, we're, we're going to split up here. Uh, you go your way. I'll stay here. I was here first. And uh, with that, we cut outside to uh, the, uh, the hover stagecoach, as I like to call it here, where we've got uh, two men seen in the village, uh, one identified as uh, Cabin, the other later identified as Stoke. And they've come to hire the Mandalorian uh, at the Razorcrest. Yes, and lost on the first view for me was the handoff of the two scenes there, I think put very ably and, and with the appropriate plainness by you, Pete. But, you know, I just want to highlight here, Cara Dune says essentially, hey, I was here first, maybe you should leave. Cut to the Mandalorian apparently packing up his ship ready to leave. Mm -hmm. uh perhaps it strains credulity in terms of oh it's a, you know there's an entire planet but we are working with the you know space western here and she's claimed the town and he's going to shuffle off to the next town that kind of thing but as you say pete the villagers approach uh they're looking to hire him he is a mandalorian after all or at least isn't that mandalorian armor they have money to hire him he looks at the modest bag of loot and he knows that it's not enough he says no repeatedly and they sulk away <sighs> they're headed back to their farm in the middle of nowhere. Wait a minute. Middle of nowhere catches the Mandalorian's ear. He is willing to go to the middle of nowhere. Uh, he will unload his things into the farmer's uh, space wagon, but needs to make <laughs> one stop. Pete, what is that stop? To throw credits at Cara Dune there by fire, ready for round two. So maybe the most western thing yet is this ride to the village here the mandalorian stretching out they're under the stars the child's checking it out and they're having this discussion uh though she's accepted it cara dune not really enthusiastic to be quartered in the middle of nowhere for lunch money but seems to be sold on it being the right thing to do um, and, you know, some of that is achieved in the dialogue, some of that is achieved in the camera work, some of that is achieved in the acting, and I think now is a great time to just circle back and to remind ourselves that Gina Carano, uh, in some of the early press stuff for the show, was so kind of appreciative having been accepted first into the MMA community, then being accepted into the acting community, now accepted into the Star Wars community, and you really sense a certain humility that she has uh, as a performer. I think that, you know, I mean, MMA, please don't put me in an MMA ring or octagon or whatever, but there's a certain level of performance that I think is, is the through line for her various phases of career here. And, you know, for her to describe herself as not really an actress and things like that, all right, I don't know that Hollywood is beating down her door to play, you know, the next you know oscar winning fiddle playing survivor of a major disaster you know things like like that but she's great in this role as the stoic woman who can kick butt and who you want to go not toe to toe with but you want to stand on the line with her as you fight a common enemy yeah and with each appearance and we know she'll be back she'll only become more beloved uh this is somebody who 
you know, is acknowledged this week as this episode's come out where she debuts that, you know, she wasn't up for the traditional Hollywood roles and she nearly left Hollywood. She admits that she's shaped like a Mack truck. But, you know, in terms of body positivity and what she provides in this role here, there's a place for that and just absolutely inhabits this character. I mean, the, the one thing we hadn't talked about yet about her appearance, you know, you got to kind of know to look for it beneath the left eye. She has a Rebel Alliance teardrop tattoo. OK, so there's some stuff and some things that this character has seen. And again, like the Mandalorian, we don't need to get it all up front. Well, I was with Ambassador Gleepglop and, you know, I left him and now I'm hiding out from bounty hunters. You know, the, these stories and the pace at which they unfold in the simple way that avoids the, the painful type of exposition that we see in a lot of genre TV. Well, a, a brief tangent, if you don't mind, looking at the uh, the concept art during the credits this week, I w- it just randomly took me back to, I had a friend in middle school and high school who was really into the Star Wars role-playing games. Usually he constructed them very poorly because it'd be like, and then suddenly I remember I have a lightsaber and I cut your head off the end. It's like, okay, that really wasn't a fun story. That was you affirming your awesomeness, you know. But I remember like looking through those like booklets and whatnot. And I, I was never really somebody who spoke the language of these role-playing games or this Dungeons and Dragons, Star Wars, whatever. But you kind of flip through them and it's like, oh, here's this guy. And it was just that notion of the edge of this expanded universe. And I feel like you know, that ethos runs through this show, which, you know, I know week after week, we kind of comment in one way or the other about how, you know, it's not the the capital city planet and the, the, the general of the rebellion. It's not kind of the core of what's going on in this galaxy, but it's nice to kind of get out from all of that, to spend time in the Star Wars universe where, you know, like, for example, I had not, I had, I saw the thing under her eye. I just kind of was like, oh, she has a mole. I didn't, realize that it was a tattoo but when you notice that it now adds more to the character without you know let me tell you and then on yavin and then on the and then it, right. it's just keep it moving with these characters who are living in the now and it further affirms her message you know she was a believer fighting you know for the rebellion and then when it became political she backed away that was not what she signed up for Once they reach the farm, she awakens, as does everybody else on the stagecoach there. The children, of course, rush over, Winta fawning over the child. And then they're given some space in the barn where our titular character meets the mother, Omera, for the first time. Yes, and she says that she's cleaned the barn out for him. Again, kind of Western ethos here. You know, let's have the stranger stay in the barn because we don't want him in the house. Um, not that I think that she has that reservation, but that's the reservation that a family has in the Western when they're living on the frontier. Um, he, of course, you know, thankful for it, appreciative for it. He almost draws on Winta, who's poking around, but it's all good especially once Omera says that this nice man is going to be the one who protects the village. 
Uh, so if you've gotten a little lost in shiny armor and, you know, laser guns, little reminder of the basic thrust of the episode here. Uh, later, Omera and Winta bring Mando and the child food. Uh, the girl feeds the baby and then goes to play with it outside the barn. Uh, the Mandalorian is reluctant, very reluctant, but Omera says it will be fine. Uh, Omera is also leaving food for the Mandalorian. He can eat it when she leaves. And with that, she asks how long it's been since he's taken off the helmet. The question that we all have. Uh, he says yesterday. She means, however, in front of someone. Maybe a little wink-wink in the air. I don't know. Uh, but he says that he was a child. Uh, the Mandalorians gave him a place after his parents were killed. This is the way. Yes, yeah, so the confirmation here that he was not Mandalorian by birth. He was taken in. Um, great shot of the child in the background as this is uh, being unfurled. And then in the forest, we have the uh, tracking, again, courtesy of the helmet, 15 to 20. Okay, we've got an amount, but also there are branches sheared off, a giant footprint, and they tell us here this is an ATST, an all-terrain scout transport also known as a scout walker you know they say imperial walker those are the big at ats and it is at at not at at because that's just stupid but would you say at st i've heard it i've heard other not, people say well but i would say at at because that's what i said on christmas morning 1980 leave me alone well, uh, no joke, when we get done with this, I legitimately need to update my uh, list to Santa to ask for the, uh, <laughs> the ATST release that includes the Mandalorian, uh, ATST Lego release for this holiday season that includes go. the Mandalorian and Cara Dune. I looked at it before and I was like, oh, they did, what's it called in the world of toy, like sticker, sticker something, paint something, you know, we're like, oh, they... They just put these new figures in there for like an old ATST, or they put like new colors on it. Now I'm like, oh, I saw that yeah. this week. I need, I, I need it. Uh, <laughs> I want it. Um, anyhow, the notion of them going up against a Walker. This is more than Cara Dune signed up for. Cut to the Mandalorian telling the village the bad news. He says, "Bad news. You can't live here anymore." Kara chides him for his bedside manner and then explains that the odds are uneven. Uh, she kind of wags a finger a bit. The villagers didn't say anything about a walker. Uh, she has seen what a walker can do to a bunch of soldiers. And after all, there are only two fighters here. No, say the villagers. There are 20. Everyone can fight. Uh, Cara Dune, not convinced. But as the Mandalorian sits back, it appears he is convinced. Yeah, so they lay it out for them that there's two problems, the bandit and the mech. They're going to handle the mechanized walker, but they need the villagers to protect them from the raiders. So with Karen finally name-checked, the veteran, the drop soldier of the rebellion, she lays out the plan. Nothing can damage the legs, all right? got that we can't do anything there so we dig a trap it drops into it um they're gonna make barricades with trees kind of shunt them into the middle there be able to cut them down and then the mandalorian hands out weapons and he gives omira the bounty hunter bosk's rifle 
Ooh. That, of course, because she had sheepishly raised her hand. Uh, I'm one of the people who can shoot. Uh, we see some of the villagers prepping for shooting practice. We cut back to Kara training other villagers with pokey sticks, ponji sticks perhaps, back to the Mandalorian who sees that Omera is very handy with a rifle. She's hitting that that hanging pan, bang, 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 bang there. Man. Yeah, yes. Mandalorian is inside his thermal vision has turned into some kind of like heart filter from Instagram. Uh, as the sun sets, the Mandalorian says goodbye for now to Omera. Uh, when they, he and Kara, come back, they'll be hot. Pete, is there heat in the air now as the Mandalorian says goodbye to O'Mara? Uh, Kara enters the shot and nods. It's time. Uh, that night, Mando and Kara infiltrate the enemy camp. Even as those boys are drinking, Pete, what's the glow beer called? Romulan Ale. <laughs> Pete, other universe earlier. <laughs> or may, might be same universe, different galaxy, earlier time. Spotchka. Spotchka. Pete, now is the time that we ask, are they selling Spotchka at Galaxy's Edge? And if not, when will they be selling Spotchka at Galaxy's Edge? Furthermore, will it actually glow? And will it glow like when it comes out later? Or are they going to work out that food and safety <laughs> stuff? I don't know, but I want to and, go there and, and have Spotchka. We are not, Fantastic Geek is not advocating taking the liquid from glow sticks and pouring it into your stein and drinking that. You're going to have a bad time. Completely true. Side note, Pete, did you know that both Galaxy's Edge locations canonically are considered to be the same spot? That's strange, given that they're 3,000 miles away. <laughs> but they're laid out identically, even though one is north-south and the other is south-north. It's the same It's the same place on the same day, which is kind of well, cool. Like, if you got off a transport... There you go. Yet it could be night at one and, uh, you know, not at the other. So well, there you go. I think when you're there, that's your, when you're there, you're there. But I digress, Pete. Uh, inside the brew tent, uh, or at least the tent where they're keeping the Spotchnik brew tanks that they stole, uh, the Mandalorian sets a timed detonator. Uh, two more come in for Grog. Kara starts punching. Mandalorian follows suit. In the background, the detonator counts higher and higher. The pitch, it's just wonderful. As I said on Twitter, we need that pitch as a ringtone. <laughs> more baddies enter and are dispensed with, and ultimately, when even more show, the Mandalorian shoots a hole in the back of the tent. Both he and Kara escape as it explodes. Hopefully the plan worked. So did it, Pete? With the explosion here, two red eyes rise out of the tree line great way rather than overdoing it and you know i've seen people tisk tisking it like oh you didn't want to go for the 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 big shot with the walker they gave you enough of the walker here they're not going to physically build it but to do it in a tension-filled way to use those eyes there to really kind of uh you know anthropomorphize it uh really helps as well my only complaint to my eyes, I never saw, like, heads in there. Like, I know we're looking through the window of the, of the uh, you know, into the control room of the walker. Yeah. I felt like there was never, like, guy looking out there going, you know, no, aim left or that sort of thing. But, uh, but we head back to the village, that walker chase now having ensued. Back to the village, 
The Fisher farmers have their guns at the ready. The children and the child are hidden away with appropriate clutching together and uh sounds. The goal is reiterated by Kara uh, once she arrives back. Get that thing into the pond. Weapons ready. Um, that walker comes into view and stops just at the waterline. Oh, no. Yes, adding to the tension here as we go. A new plan. We've got to uh, draw it further up. So Kara uh, Dune gets the pulse rifle from the Mandalorian, gets it to step a little further. Um, there's this cat and mouse game as she's in the bog there firing back and forth and the use of light, the, the spotlight from the ATST. Finally, she hits the right window. It slides in. Uh, to the pond there, Mandalorian runs up and throws a thermal detonator in the other window, and the raiders defeated, they run off. Cut to cheering villagers, and the Mandalorian asks if that was Kara's plan. Kara says that she's happy with it. Uh, what appears to be the next day, but in dialogue, is actually weeks later. Uh, the child is hunting the one-eyed frog. The village kids are impressed and grossed out uh, once the child catches it, and this time he spits it out. Omera brings Kara a drink and offers something for the Mandalorian in the house. Perhaps later, he says. Omera walks away, and Kara asks, what happens if the mask comes off? The answer is, it can't go back on. That's it. No serious repercussions. Uh, but obviously to somebody who's taken on the tribal lifestyle, like the Mandalorian here, it has greater meaning. Uh, absolutely. He, of course, dedicated to the life, but it is Kara who says, you know, if the mask can come off, fine, take it off, settle down with the widow O'Mara and just raise the kid. Uh, instead, the Mandalorian plans to leave the child, ostensibly under O'Mara's care, and uh, the Mandalorian is going to move on. That way he will take the fight with him. With that, we cut to a bounty hunter's fob tracking, as we will learn, the child. Uh, although, I don't even know, as, as we would learn, I don't know why anyone would have a tracking thing on, uh, on the Mandalorian. But in the Krill Poor field... Cara Dune that she worried uh, that uh, he had one on her. Uh, true, Absolutely. In the Krill field, the Mandalorian takes Omera aside. It's clear that, chi that the child is happy here, but what about the Mandalorian? He's offered a place. You and your boy could have a life. He considers it, maybe, his voice wavering a little bit there. Uh, Omera reaches for his helmet, but he wants to keep it on. Uh, he doesn't belong here, but the child does. Oh no, Pete, take us back to that bounty hunter. Yeah, the gun sight moving first from the Mandalorian potentially removing his helmet to the child. And this is where we're all ready to riot. If that child gets hurt, forget about the merchandise people are upset at. They can't buy just yet. Anything happens to this child. Disney is in trouble. I can only imagine a, you know, a cliffhanger episode where it gets taken away from him. Um, and, and how people are going to erupt after that. But heaven forbid it take a blaster bolt to the face. 
from the perspective of the Mandalorian and Omera, we hear a gunshot, but then we cut back to Cara Dune, who has killed the sniper from behind. Uh, the Mandalorian rolls the body over. I guess some quick editing to get him there. Uh, get him there. It's only occurred to me now, and I watched the episode two or three times. Um, but anyhow, the body rolled over. The fob is still beeping. Uh, whoever they are, they know he's here. They'll keep coming. The Mandalorian smashes the fob, but clearly it is time to leave. And uh, cut to him packing up. And wait, Pete, not taking Cara Dune with him? Yeah, it's kind of like a Western. People go different ways, but their paths will cross again. Because they even say, until our paths cross. So we know it's going to happen. We've seen promotional images of her in a different setting. So that's going to happen. Um, but loading up the old uh, hover stagecoach here doesn't want the escort. He's going to uh, avoid the town and just go back to the ship. Winta comes over to the child and embraces him. She's going to miss him so much as it hovers away with the child looking back on what might have been his home. Let's chase down some theories. So, Pete, you know I try and avoid spoilers. This is also a show that just has built into it a lack of spoilers. No, you know, next time on, things like that. But uh, the actress, Emily Swallow, who plays the armorer, uh, was sharing in the love of uh, the Cara Dune character and uh, said that, that you know, uh, share not exactly sharing the screen she didn't go that far but reference was made to meeting the actress while making the show so will we see the armorer on screen with Cara Dune at some point in these remaining four episodes we had better I mean it's tantalizing with the background and the semi-armored appearance of Cara Dune you know what is a, a rebellion shock trooper I mean that's that type of moniker seems like something the Empire, and in fact, we know there were clone shock troopers. So, uh, you know, is, is there a helmet? Uh, you know, what, what else is there? Could it be uh, retconned? Could she use an armorer to make her, you know, a, a, a Beskar, whatever? Uh, yeah, it's tantalizing, and we had better get that, if not this season, next. Well, I think that's one you, you're speaking to one of the strengths of this show, and you know I certainly have no problem with uh, the two sequel films that have been out. I'm, I'm looking forward to Rise of Skywalker. My childhood has not been ruined, but clearly a decision was made in in these films to maintain a lot of the familiar iconography and kind of universe stuff. And it's like, oh look, they're still using X wings, and oh look, they're still using Tie Fighters and things of that sort. But so. they're different, and and that's what I think. Where the people who have flipped their lids over this, the edict universally was make it like my childhood, but make it completely different. And for the people that freaked out with the Force Awakens, you re you remade a New Hope. They didn't, okay. And then with The Last Jedi, you made a Star Wars movie that was so completely different from any Star Wars movie I had ever watched before. Um, you know, you can't have it both ways. 
And there's a look, there's a feel to Star Wars, this lived in type of universe. And with this show, with those sequels, you mix in the familiar and then you change it up a little bit. Here's your ATST with tattoos. Here is your uh, Boba Fett armor, but it's silver and there's no antenna, no jetpack. There's a natural evolution to it. And I think part of the natural evolution that this show is bringing to Star Wars is kind of almost that that return to, you know, whether it's the, the original trilogy or that kind of period afterwards where it's just books and comics and things like that, where we're not getting the Cara Dune story up front here. And maybe that becomes a spinoff series. Maybe that becomes a comic, a novel, whatever it is. There's kind of that, there's that interest to see it versus you know, we're going to kind of basically package things in familiar turf. And again, I don't mean this as a as a broad criticism to the sequel trilogy. Just the sequel trilogy is kind of maintaining things within really understandable uh, tropes, whereas this show, you know, it's a similar, similar box of paints. It's just with a little bit more mystery to where people have been and where they're headed. I would argue there's a little bit more mystery, obviously, with Ray's background and everything like that. And the films are done on a grander level. But in terms of an episodic week to week type of thing, you know, three episodes here with the Mandalorian, really a beginning, middle and end to that adventure of acquiring the asset in the child and then the remorse in turning him over and getting him back and now looking to stash him in this new kind of you know, part to the story, I hesitate to say chapter since they're each identified as chapters. And with the introduction of Cara Dune now, you know, all right, we know that timeline wise, we're five years after the Battle of Endor. So that's how long potentially she's talking about, you know, having been around doing things. And we could imagine recently since the barmaid said she's been there about a week um, you know, shown up on Sorgan looking to uh, leave it all behind. So not a full-fledged theory here, but perhaps the beginnings of one, I don't know. Uh, this episode was another example of a supporting role played by kind of a well-established, if not super famous, Hollywood comedian. Uh, I refer to, of course, uh, Eugene Cordero playing Cabin. And, you know, tying back to Horatio Sands as uh, the blue-skinned alien at the, in the pilot episode. And That's Brian saying, um, So, like, what's up with this, the decision to go for funny people, particularly in roles that aren't funny? I mean, the, the Horatio Sands character, there was a comedy to it that I think was well-served mm-hmm. getting a, a comedian along the way. But, you know, these comedians that keep, popping up in roles that aren't, you know, oh no, I dropped my spoons or whatever it is. I think it brings a little character that we're not necessarily used to seeing. I mean, we don't get the the broad comedic types in our, uh, you know, saga films. And to get a little bit of a flavor for that, even the barkeep is like, hey, and oh, I'll get you this. And, you know, that amiable, if moderately comedic uh dash that she adds to it a little bit of attitude uh so i think it's certainly welcome you know the the two villagers kind of bumbling sets them on a little bit of an arc they are the ones that bring them in and ultimately they're successful and 
they learn to defend their village and uh, go through this journey. So I don't know that prior to the ending bit of this episode, I don't know that it was clear that we were necessarily headed back to uh, the client or whoever hired the client to that world. We could have just continued on the run. But I think surely it's clear with the, 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 the foot on the pedal here with the bounty hunter showing up to get the child, it's clear that we're headed back to those characters or to, to whoever ordered the client to get the child. That whole world is going to be uh, world in the story sense, not you know the planet of Mud City, but we're surely headed back to some sort of resolution in the next four episodes, right? You have to. Uh, that's unresolved business, and we knew it wasn't going to go away. You know, when and our heart is breaking as the Mandalorian is even thinking about leaving the child, but just with that little epilogue there of the bounty hunter showing up, and obviously Cara Dune is on the lookout because she's trying to fend people off from herself. Uh, to be in a position to take him out. But yeah, I mean, where we go next, I, I love that we don't get the previews at the end of an episode. I love that there's, well, we will see you on Hoth, you know, that kind of thing. It's open-ended, but yeah, this business with uh, the remnant of the Empire that wants this child heretofore unconcluded and uh, going to have more of it. What uh, other theories are on your space scope? So I had noted the rifle that the Mandalorian takes out of his supply and arms Omera with. That is the same rifle that the reptilian bounty hunter Bosk, uh, a Trandoshan bounty hunter, uh, uses. Did the Mandalorian ice him? I think that's... That's maybe the deep cut suggestion there. And, you know, is it something to commit to fully? Okay, obviously not. But again, I think that's kind of the little, the, the little suggestion there. You know, I'm sure the gun people would say, you know, oh, well, uh, there's all sorts of Transocean uh, rifles out there. There are plenty. But yeah, just that little suggestion. Ooh, the Mandalorian's the one that got him. You know, Pete, maybe there's your, you know, Tales from the Mandalorian's Past novel that uh, that can join the Tales from Jabba's Palace and Tales from the Mos Eisley Cantina anthology books. The loath cat showing up and sneering at the child. Obviously, this is Dave Filoni's influence in terms of an animated creature he had uh, added to the saga, but that this thing wants to harm the child. Well, or just kind of hisses it away, you know, particularly size being relative uh, for, the, for the two of them, you know, would the loath cat, could the loath cat be concerned that something about its size could hurt it, so give a hiss and on it goes, you know. Um, but to your larger point there, I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that this episode, written by John Favreau, executive produced by John Favreau, uh, you know, created by John Favreau, that Filoni is a, you know, is a co-partner in all of this. Particularly, you know, Pete, I know in previous episodes we discussed, you know, the fact that Kathleen Kennedy doesn't have a contract uh, after 2021, and will Disney bring her back? Does she want to come back? Et cetera, et cetera. I mean, one really does. Let me put it this way: if I had to put my money down, if Kathleen Kennedy wasn't going to come back, I feel like Dave Filoni is the 
logical creative successor to Lucasfilm, probably Favreau would get it offered first because he's more, you know, the well-rounded Hollywood guy with, you know, writing and acting and producing and all directing and all that. But, you know, Filoni is a huge force, no pun intended, in the world of Star Wars, particularly currently. So the helmet and the Mandalorian lore there, just to know that he took it off yesterday so it's not constantly affixed to him and the rules seem to apply that you don't do it in the presence of other people. Okay, we very elegantly um, come to understand he eats. Uh, He does take it off in that scene and look out at the child and people with it off. So conceivably, they've seen him. They know whether Pedro Pascal has a mustache or not. I would agree that logically, the way the scene is lit, he it's clear he's looking out. Logically, they can look in. I think within the magic of the story, they can't see him. Um, it's more constructed by uh, either directly by Bryce Dallas Howard or the director of photography or written in the script by, by uh, Favreau to just go for that coolness of we the camera cannot see him we're not even going to see the back of his head uh we're going to see from the shoulders down we are constricted and i think it's kind of like by implication therefore everybody out in the village center is constricted from seeing him too if not literally then in a creative sense of and no one looked up or if we cared enough we would show you the reverse shot to see that he's completely in shadow but we don't need to it's just we are denied it everyone is denied it All right, extend that antenna. Pete, first stop here is our uh, poll on Twitter. Uh, One star, Walker down, 0%. Two stars, a bit krilly, 5%. Three stars, delicious broth, 10%. And four stars, helmet off, 85%. Uh, a couple of replies to the tweet here. Uh, first of all, James, it's at Big Killin. This episode had a different feel, which was nice. The ATAT, I think he means ATST, Pete. It, it's been a busy last couple of days for everybody. Uh, <laughs> the Walker coming out of the tree line at night was awesome. Kara was worth the wait. Uh, and a reply from JT Adkins, that's uh, at JTA is me. In a galaxy far, far away, yet such a story grounded in people, specifically centered on a person whose face we can't see, who we nonetheless become more sympathetic to with each successive episode. Helmets off to the entire team. Yeah, the more simplistic the story, the more human moments we have in this episode. Uh, and one more tweet here from Andre Yeager. That's at Dr. Polo 1983. At least we know how he eats. Each week also gives us a little bit more of his backstory. Good job. And Pete, I think Andre has a great point there that, I don't know, for the scope of this show, if we got the Mandalorian flashback episode, it would be a little less compelling than, hey, he's a lone gunman squared out against the wild violence of the West, Space West, and bit by bit finding out about him. The only thing I might have added, and it's just the wackiness of where I'd look to go, that he uses the helmet as a dish. (laughs) Um, Pete, all things are possible for Star Wars here. Pete, I was so kind of 
I don't want to say emotionally worked up, but I was so emotionally struck by the Omera Mandalorian relationship, the yearning that is left unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. I had to go with a second tweet, um, which was, "Who else is a little depressed that Omera wanted some loving and got none?" And Pete, I don't necessarily mean in a physical sense. I think emotional is what's driving her most of all. Uh, a couple of replies here. The first one from from uh, General Fred, that's at Petrified underscore Fred, who gives the sad emoji. I know we'll be hearing his voice in a little bit, but sad emoji indeed. Uh, reply from uh, Disney SPN fan MCU and Winchester Always, that's at Disney underscore SPN underscore fan on Twitter, uh, who says, uh, I am broken heart emoji and then a few more words here from craig that's at entropic enigma there's no rule that's saying he couldn't have provided some form of loving without removing the headgear oh my in all sincerity i think the (laughs) helmet comes off at the end of the season maybe the last five minutes or so and it's done in response to slash for the child in some manner i i love that i really do but you know all right we've we've built in the potential for a love interest i'm i'm glad they didn't feel the need to introduce Cara Dune and you be fighter, me be fighter, we be fighters. No, they, they can just be, you know, uh, comrades in arms and have this mutual respect for one another. But there's, there's a real match with Omera and the Mandalorian. I mean, she's what's her backstory is, is she, you know, was she in the Imperial Academy and now she she brews this krill with the, the child and everything. And that's why she's such a good shot. There's there's storytelling potential down the road there if they should ever choose to go back to it. Pete, uh, calamari flan on the table. Do we get Omera's return in this season? <sighs> At this point, I would say with four episodes, it seems like they have a little bit more storytelling to do i I think we're going to be left with some kind of a cliffhanger so kanamari flan on the table i'd say no pete an email from our pal mike Sorensen. he says as follows i know i'm not going to be unique in this but i'm proud of my geek credentials with this episode I know they were going up against the ATST with the initial attack based on the sound of the laser, uh, uh, pardon me, of the blast cannons being used. It's nice to know I've still got the touch. (laughs) Of course, Mike does. The force is strong with him. Pete, what else is in the Holonet inbox? We have a couple of Apple podcast reviews. The first is from Trey Nine. The headline is Deep Knowledge, Four Stars. And it reads, lacks some of the revelry of other podcasts. And that's answered by TK1169 underscore 501st, who left a five-star review uh, retorting, this podcast lacks nothing, reading, great as always, Matt and Pete do not try, they just do. There's another review from Sciensaurus Rex, also five stars, deep and insightful. Uh, and it says, my go-to podcast for The Mandalorian. They know their Star Wars history. They know their audience. My first stop after an episode. And then Dr. Steve T. Uh, also left a five-star review with possibly the most complimentary um, 
headline of all time, a cam tono of geekiness. The Fantastic Geeks, Matt and Pete, fans with the PH there of all things Star Wars and Trek and Marvel. Their coverage of this show from Disney Plus decodes and explores all the ins and outs of the first Star Wars TV show. Most definitely worth the listen. Well, Pete, my heart overfloweth with those Camtono Camtonos. I don't know, Pete. I just don't know. <laughs> but that's how that's how overfloweth the moment is. So thank you, one and all, who took took the uh, the time there to give us positive reviews. Yes, and uh, those who can't contribute to patreon.com slash fantasticgeek that help us at this time of year when we're facing some bills, the Apple Podcast rating takes seconds, the review takes a little bit more, but all are appreciated. And Pete, speaking of helping support the podcast, it is Fred in the Netherlands sending his wise sagacity from the Netherlands to us here, then his voice round the world. Shall I press the play button, Pete? Yes. Hello, Matt and Pete and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for The Mandalorian Season 1, Episode 4. Chapter 4, Sanctuary. When I see the village in this episode, it reminds me very much of the Baku village in Star Trek Insurrection. And as well as the short track with Saru, the episode called The Brightest Star, which was actually filmed at Bluffers Park in Toronto. And I visited that spot once, actually because several scenes of Orphan Black were filmed there. But not only this short track episode was filmed there, but also scenes from Killjoys and even scenes from The Expanse. Well Pete, you got your answer about a Mandalorian eating habits. Last podcast you said... Well, let's sit down and talk about when you were eight and reached the time of the great challenging and got your helmet and... You have never eaten since then because you are wearing a helmet or we feed you intravenously or whatever. We also know that it's not necessary to have a face to attract two very nice and very different beautiful women. So keep that helmet on Mando. You never know what happens if you take it off. I really wonder if in the next two or three episodes we will see the Mandalorian's face. I like this episode somewhat better than the first two, although they were very nice as well. But for the special effects and the Jawas, etc., I really liked the first episode. But story-wise, this is much broader, because the first episode is how to get that kid. The second episode, I bring the kid away and then get some remorse and get it back. But this was this story was broader. I liked the interaction between the Joda-like kid and the other kids, but who didn't? And final remark, I finally got from under my rock, stone or out of my cave and saw a very nice poster about Star Wars 9, The Rise of Skywalker. I'm surely going to see that film in a movie theater. Greetings, till next time, Brad from the Netherlands. Pete, Fred's wisdom, always appreciated there. And he he mentioned a little bit about the villagers. 
the villagers, of course, built on that Western movie template of meager folk living in the, the frontier and or the template of Native Americans. I think that this episode landed both sensibilities without seeming either kind of stereotypical in an ethnic sense or just stereotypical in terms of, look, it's space Native Americans or that sort of thing. Yeah, and the fishing type of aesthetic, even though it's done in a, a woodland setting, uh, nice mashup of, of the different things. You know, Fred referring to the Star Trek short track, which later in Discovery uh, used as well as a set uh, in the particular spot in Canada. But those were, you know, fishing villages on a lake. Um, I have not seen, and maybe that speaks to the secrecy of Star Wars and Disney, where this location was. Um, we know that they filmed in California for the, uh, the desert portions. Love to know where this is, if, if anybody's seen that. And I've scoured and not been able to find it. I hope that with the ilk of, or similar to the ilk of, all the, you know, what, what used to be DVD and Blu-ray extras for Endgame that are now on Disney Plus for some of the great documentary stuff going on, like the Imagineering story. I hope that at the end of this Mandalorian season, we get, you know, director's commentary tracks for every episode. We get the making of that, surprise, nobody knew there was going to be a making of, but a week after, you know, Mandalorian 108, surprise, there's now a new episode, quote-unquote, of The Mandalorian in that here's the hour-and-a-half production diary or whatever it might be but uh back to fred here pete uh is episode 104 the best and broadest of the bunch uh, fred certainly giving this episode high praise it's it's good it's not my favorite i still think that second episode with the the jawa stuff in particular we, we have not eclipsed that just yet but they each provide Maybe not to the level of the other show we're podcasting right now, The Watchmen, where each episode is so very, very different. It's like slices of different pie each week. But, you know, different enough here, the the homestead, you know, uh, hired guns situation, um, you know, to defend the, uh, the fishing village uh, episode really works. Lastly, Pete, Fred did mention that other Star Wars thing coming out in December, of course, Rise of Skywalker. And I know that we've mentioned a couple times we'll be seeing it uh, on the Thursday night. But a reminder to everybody, we're actually going to be podcasting it on Sunday, December 22nd. So certainly look forward to hearing some Fred feedback, certainly anybody else, whether it's through social media, whether it's uh, Gmail, whatever it might be, we'll give all the contact info in a little bit, but maybe in the neighborhood of uh, 12 o'clock Eastern on December 22nd, that'll be the the, the soft cutoff for uh, Rise of Skywalker feedback ahead of our podcast same day there. And I'm sure people are going to have a lot to say about the end of that nine movie cycle. Well, Pete, our thanks again to the people who keep us going on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Keep us uh, supported both with the back catalog and future endeavors, as well as here we are in the present with Mandalorian, Watchmen, Godfriended Me, Star Treks, etc. Yes, every contributor just so valued. All it takes is a dollar to get you in that door. You get exclusive podcast content, boils down to just a quarter a week over that month-long commitment and really help us out. Again, 
can't make that right now, we truly understand what the holidays uh, might consider going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating, a review for any of our 19 podcast feeds. Uh, we surpassed a record for Fantastic Geek for the sixth consecutive year. Uh, we've topped our output from the previous year, this being our 162nd podcast. Congrats, Matt. We have uh, podcasted enough episodes, one for every Major League Baseball game in a regular season. Indeed, Pete, still slugging along. And uh, I'll just point out, as we get ready to talk about contact info here, this particular podcast may be one of the most, uh, you know, the most broad in terms of tweets, email, voice, uh, you know, voice MP3 sent by Fred. So let's go through the list here, Pete. How can people be in touch with you to talk about The Mandalorian? Find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,894 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do me in touch with the podcast comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek, all one word with the P-H. Like it today. Well, Pete, as we wrap up, our last podcast of November, looking ahead to a super busy December. Uh, Watchmen, Mandalorian, Godfriend and Me, uh, two Star Trek short treks, Runaways, etc. Uh, but of course, wouldn't want to be doing it any other way. So with that, I will say adios to all the listeners and give you, Pete, the final word. Until our paths cross. Until our paths cross.